Humanistic presents Color Commentary, your podcast for thoughts and analysis on race, education, and the state of our society impacting popular culture and politics. Today's podcast features the humans behind the humanistic organization with humanistic treasurer and director of technology, Christina Harris. And leading today's discussion will be humanistic vice president, Hazana Underwood. Also today, we'll be joined by our special guest commentator, noted Ph.D. and assistant professor of Pan-African and Ethnic Studies at Sacramento State University, Dr. Martin L. Boston. Today, we will discuss what is Black History Month, its origins, and its significance to our current society. And joining us today, we are going to have a special guest commentator. Um, We have the Mr. Ph.D. and assistant professor of Pan-African and Ethnic Studies at Sacramento State University, Dr. Martin L. Boston. And I'm super excited to have him here today because, uh, so this is kind of how this all started, but we have Black History Month coming up. And as an organization, we've been trying to figure out how to shed light and ultimately unify us as a people. And I think there are a lot of positive things that come out of Black History Month, but I believe there, there are also a lot of negative things that come out of that, um, more so like, why do they get their own month? And I just wanted to take a step back because our goal is to provide understanding and thus acceptance in allyship, right? And I think often the message is lost or the thing, whatever it may be, when it comes to somebody that is other or different, is a lack of understanding, So with that, I wanted to step back and kind of delve into Black history. What is it? Why is it? Why a month? You know, or as a person of color, as a black woman, why do I only get a month? But, you know, I'm going to go ahead and turn it over to you and um, allow you to give us some insight. Absolutely. Uh, One, um, I'm very excited to be here. I've known Hazana for a very long time. I'm not going to age ourselves, but uh, (laughs) we go back. We go back like like, uh, Cadillacs and all that. So um, it's good good to be here. I'm excited to be here. Um, But yeah, so Black History Month. Um, Yeah, I hear all that stuff, right? So you hear, um, why we only get a month? Why is it the shortest month of the year? You know, and you hear from other, you know, oppressed groups like um, why don't we get a month and all this other kinds of things. So it's, it's a lot of misconceptions, a lot of kind of, you know, it's, it's ultimately about history and it's about right. understanding when this all starts, why it all starts, who all starts it. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, first of all, we weren't given anything. It was something that was created by black people for black people to acknowledge the contributions of black people to American society. So this is a very much, it originates as an African-American history week, right, in mm-hmm. 1915. Okay. By Carter G. Woodson, which one of my fraternity brothers, the Great Omega Sci-Fi Fraternity Incorporated, um, Carter G. Woodson actually starts it with the prominent minister, Jesse E. Moreland. And, well, them two start um, ASNLH, um, which is the Association for the Study of Negro Life and History. So they start that in 1915. And out of that organization, eventually they start... Negro History Week. Now, just to back up a little bit, Carter G. Woodson is a you know Harvard-educated historian, um, one of the early Black um, people to get a PhD or uh, you know to graduate with a degree from Harvard University. Uh, the first was actually W. B. Du Bois, right? 
So let's think about what Du Bois is and when he writes. So Du Bois writes in 1903, uh, The Souls of Black Folk. Very kind of prominent book about um, black people's kind of place in society in 1903. And I only bring this up because we are talking about the end of slavery in 1863 is when the Emancipation Proclamation is signed and when it's actually kind of, you know, you know, Juneteenth comes about in 1865, two years after the Emancipation Proclamation, two and a half years after the Emancipation Proclamation, when we say the last slaves were told in Texas that they were freed, right? So that's 1865, and we're talking about 1915 is when Negro History Week is created, right? Let me tell you something about 1915. So that's in the middle of World War II. That's also, I mean, World War II, World War One. that's also in the middle of the first great migration. That's also in a time when there is over a hundred documented lynchings in America during that, during that time, documented, right? Far more than this actually happening. It is extremely racial, terroristic time in America, particularly for the formerly enslaved. So you talk about at the end of 1865 to 1970, uh, to 1876, there is the Reconstruction area. It falls because of kind of the white poor really kind of siding with uh, the Republican South and really, tr- I mean, the uh, Democratic South, which is interesting as we think about Democrats and Republicans very differently than right. we did at the time. Yeah. But they side with that side because there's labor um, issues because you have the formerly enslaved who are now fighting with poor whites and trying to um, get labor. So after uh, 1876, there's this racial terror reeking through the, through the South, through the North, so on and so forth, through the United States of America. We talk about in um, 1896, that's when Plessy versus Ferguson comes in the law, which is like now the law of the land is officially Jim Crow. And we just get like a decade, you know, two decades later is when Negro History Week starts. So really, this is I always play all this to say that this is a time when black people are trying to take a stake in their own lives, trying to become self-deterministic of what their life and what freedom and what their existence in the American in the United States of America will actually be. Right. Right. So. Right. Yeah, this is the beginning of folks really even being able to uh, be allowed to have an education. You know, as Hazana knows, it's a member of Alpha Kappa Alpha and Omega South Phi. These organizations just start years prior to, like, not even 10 years prior to, you know, Negro History Week being founded. So we're talking about just the beginning of really kind of trying to claim an intellectual space, trying to claim a history for Black folks in the United States at this time. So the Association for the Study of Negro Life and History changes to um, now today is being called the African-American Life and uh, the Association for African-American Life and History. And basically in 1926 is when they actually start Negro History Week. And the week is because um, it's the second you know, week of February and it coincided with Abraham Lincoln's birthday mm-hmm. and Frederick Douglass's birthday. So Abraham Lincoln's birthday is February 12th and um, Frederick Douglass is February 19th. So that's when Negro History Week by Carter G. Woodson and those to really kind of galvanize some interest in black life in America. What are our contributions? Why should we be celebrated? What is that history? Right. And then so over the years into the especially in the 1960s, when we have all this kind of civil rights and all this um, different cities and counties really had had been using Negro History Week, and then finally college campuses start taking up in the '60s, making it Black History Month. So it really starts on campuses, and then in 1976 was the first U.S. president to claim 
Black History Month, and that was um, Gerald Ford. So it was led by kind of student organizations, faculty, and campuses in the 60s, making it into Black History Month. And then eventually, the U.S. presidents, every U.S. president since Gerald Ford in 1976, has claimed February as Black History Month. So that's kind of a long way to say that it's a long, complicated history is why we have Black History Month. It's not just some white man uh, as president decided that we're just going to give them February. No, no. We chose that as a very kind of intentional idea of um, as kind of talking back to the kind of violences and history that we're experiencing at the beginning of the 1900s. And I think that piece in and of itself is interesting and good to know. Like, I feel like a lot of people, um, first, you know, black people like, why we get February, the shortest month of the year, you know? And I actually, don't judge me, just looked that up. I was like, okay, we got, it started as the second week and this is why it started as the second week and we actually just expanded within the month that it was already in. So it was a matter of like, you guys just snatch up the shortest week and only get a month, you know? But then... I think it's beautiful. Like it was our stake, our moment in time to say, we want to illuminate positive qualities, values, who we are, what we stand for, what we've done. And then now we're, we're pressing beyond that and saying, we don't just want a month, but we are a part of history. You know, we should be in, we are history. We are equal to you. We, we almost landed here the same time in different ways at the same time. So now how do we become history and not a month, I guess, is the is the is today's challenge. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I don't think that that's not true. Right. Um, I, I, we have black studies departments, for instance. I teach in a pan-African studies department. Every single day is about teaching my students about black history. I think for a country to devote a month to considering black history as central to the country's history is important and it's necessary. Otherwise, my daughter doesn't read in preschool about Martin Luther King, right? Um, (laughs) You know, Um, Mm -hmm. so during February, I think that is important, right? I do think that um, black history must have been diluted in a lot of ways to only thinking about MLK, Malcolm X, maybe a little bit, and Rosa Parks, right? Uh, Instead of really thinking about kind of um, different kinds of contributions. But I think particularly this new generation of youth has been super fiery and active and thinking. And they've also been extremely transnational, right? So especially with the, yeah. uh, the advent of kind of social media and that kind of thing, the kind of diaspora, the, the diasporic, the transnational kind of connection kids are making, um, youth are making, uh, young adults are making with other places mm-hmm. has really kind of changed the way we even think about Black History Month to not just being about African-American life, but about black diasporic life, about anti-blackness globally, about how people are of African descent are oppressed all over the world and making connections to those kinds of movements. So I think there's ways that we continue to expand and think about um, Black History Month, um, but then Black History writ large, right? Like, right. Like who it's, are, it's not who just, are I think if you decide that you're only going to think about black history in February, then you've kind of missed the point of what Carter G. Right. and then we're talking about from mm-hmm. the very beginning. And I feel like even growing up though, I, you know, I feel like I was, I learned about myself in a month, you know, and it wasn't until I got older that I was like, I want to know more. And I feel like we have definitely transitioned 
from thinking of black history in, in just a person and what that one person does, but mm -hmm. who we are as a people and what we contribute, what we have contributed to society um, for what it is today. But then in building like allyship, so we have, you know, understanding, we hear you. Um, how do you, like even within teaching your students or how, how do you see, how do you as a person help to keep black history alive beyond just the month? And then how do you teach both your, I don't even know why I have a problem saying this. How do you teach your blacks? <laughs> how do you teach your black students who are, you know, living it versus your non-black students who you are helping to figure out how to advocate for us as a people? It's a great question. Um, so I guess I'll start with the first part of this and think about like, so it's not just in the classroom that I kind of engage black history and think about black history, but it's obviously a space that's been, that I've earned to be mm -hmm. able to, to use and to engage um, students. Um, this semester, um, this last semester, I taught a class hip hop and protest. And uh, we talk about all kinds of different things um, with regard to how hip hop has been used or not used effectively in the idea of protest. But one thing that that class allowed me to do was have a service learning requirement where all students had to do 10 hours community service, particularly around social justice organizations. And you can see how, um, and then students, so that's an entire semester, that's fall semester, <laughs> that students are out in the communities, like really trying to engage and think about social justice in a multi multitude of kind of ways. So that's one space that through the classroom, I'm able to make them reach out in <laughs> multiple ways, which is really mm -hmm. kind of interesting as a way to think about. I've also been a huge advocate and mentor uh, of mentorship. So mm -hmm. I was a member of like our Omega Young Gentlemen's program when I was living in Oakland for four years and I was heading that program. And that's a kind of a year long thing where we're engaging with black male youth and having them really think about kind of their trajectory in life and what they're what they're doing. And I think about this through the myriad of ways I kind of engage people you know, inside the classroom and outside. But then um, thinking about how I teach my black students and, wh and white students, for instance, I do it the exact same way in my classroom, which is kind of interesting because in the classroom I teach, right? And I teach right. what scholars write, right? Mm -hmm. And so in my classroom, it's very scholastic, you know, very academic place, very scholastically focused. You have to support anything you say with facts, right? What did who said that? Why did they say that? What was their evidence, right? And every student's going to have to do that. Whether you believe in what they say or not, you're going to have to engage the text and tell me why. And for the most part, you know, the people who write those books know just a little bit more than my students, at least at that point in their life. So it's hard to argue against them if you really kind of engage the work. So in, in the classroom, I don't separate. And I'm not interested in talking to students about individual people that much. I don't talk that much about Martin Luther King or Malcolm X. We read their stuff, but I think about them in the context of the moment, the entire grassroots, but more importantly, the structural inequality that persists in those moments. So the mm -hmm. structures are the things that are most important. And it's about engaging in white supremacy, right? In patriarchy, in capitalism, and how do those things affect the everyday lives of black people, right? Mm -hmm. And white people. So in that ways, I'm not attacking white students. They don't feel attacked. They feel like I'm attacking um, the institutions that have been built by their forefathers. And that's something that they have to engage with and they, and they do. 
But outside the classroom is actually where um, the biggest difference, I think, in students, because I more than likely will see my black students in my office hours on campus and other places. And that's where the extra teaching goes on, which right, is something right. much more special and personal. Right. So I'm able to mentor in a much more kind of effective way because they seek that mentorship in a lot of ways, right. um, especially on the college campus. There's so few black male, so many black teachers, but even less. If you check the percentages of black people, there will be so much less yeah. black males today. This is not like when we went to college where the majority of black professors were men. Today, it's like the exact opposite. So in a lot of ways, there's a there's a way where I get a lot of black male, but also my, especially like uh, black female students will, will seek me out, but then also like queer students who know that I'm an ally in that way. They will, they will come up to me and I'm, I'm just like, I'm going to validate their existence. <laughs> you know, like I'm here because I worked hard, but I'm also going to validate you and everything that you stand for. And I want you to succeed. So that that's where um, I think the biggest difference in, in the ways I, I engage students is when I, I'm sought after in that way outside the classroom. Beautiful, beautiful. So I just learned actually that uh, every year is dedicated to a specific topic within Black right. History Month. Yeah, that's not something that's talked about much, but that's also something that comes right. from the White House and not the actual community. Yeah. So 2022, let me let me read exactly what it says mm-hmm. it is. 2022, what is our year? The theme is Black Health and Wellness, um, exploring the legacy of not only Black scholars and medical practitioners in Western medicine, but also other ways of knowing, which is medical, the medical side is kind of my area of expertise, my love, my passion. But sadly, I feel like I, I have I, I, until 2020, didn't know much about the direct impact on us within, I mean, I know what I see, you know, but from that standpoint, it's just kind of a gut feeling, right? Mm -hmm. Um, But what is your, I guess, what, I guess, what do you have as far as expertise in that area about um, health and wellness and how we have been impacted. Yeah. I mean, I don't do necessarily a bunch of studying or teaching on health and wellness and all those kinds of things. It's just the things that I've come across. Like my work is in South Africa and the U S and I have done some thought of like Sangomas, like traditional healers and um, Mm -hmm. practitioners in South African religions and things like that. Um, and cultures. And I also think a lot about like food and diet, particularly in the black community, which is things that have been written about and thought about a lot, um, particularly around soul food and stuff like that. The food and then obviously I was, I was a college athlete. Um, so I know, I know a lot about kind of nutrition and um, working out in those kinds of spaces and those things like that. But I've done, and also kind of medical malpractice, right? Uh, not even medical malpractice, but kind of like the Tuskegee experiment and Henrietta Lacks. And Med- you're right. You're right. It's medical malpractice. <laughs> yeah, it's not even just medical, but it's also like kind of institutional and governmental, right? Mm-hmm. It's not even just medical. So it's not just like doctors on their own doing this. It's also kind of targeted kind of violence by even the military, right? Right. <laughs> um, well, in the realm of medicine over the years, we have been used as the specimens. Absolutely. Like Henrietta Lack, yeah. syphilis and Tuskegee experiment mm-hmm. and things like that. So, I mean, I haven't done really a whole lot of specific work thinking about that, but I know that there's a huge history of a kind of um, 
you know, especially black people not trusting um, doctors and those kinds of things in the medical field for good reason. Like people like Serena mm-hmm. Williams, ha- Serena Williams having to advocate for herself during pregnancy, like something's not right. You have to check this. And then they check it and find out, oh, she was not last. I think it was like preeclampsia she had or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um and during her her last during her thing, so it's a whole bunch of stuff like that where they think of like black women as superhuman and they can just take a whole lot of pain. Where yeah. no, that's not, and that goes all the way back to like slavery, right? That's why, because mm-hmm. this is crazy. Because slavery, people actually believe that um, men were most likely to be in the field, right, more mm-hmm. than women percentage wise. But that's actually mm-hmm. absolutely not the truth. Not right, L- women were by far more likely to work in the fields than in the house. We get this image of like this mammy figure that's just in the house and they just, and they're all women working in the film. That's not true. I think on Scholar, I think uh, Stephanie Smallwood, um, actually at their University of Washington in Seattle, she talks about, um, I think it was up to 80% of women worked in the fields where like 50 to 40% of men worked in the fields. Why is that? It's because of these weird gender ideas. Like men could weld and could be carpenters and do these other kinds of other kinds of things where they kept them out of the field where there wasn't a whole bunch of work that was actually needed to done in the house so women weren't really used for that and those butlers and those kinds of things would be a lot of the time men those kinds of things as well <clears throat> so women had to rear the child raise the child um that was that they did not own had to do that Eat same work for the slave uh, i mean for the uh, master and his wife and had to work in the fields, right? And that's kind of just like this crazy idea of black femininity and womanhood is extra masculine or extra um, extra something else, extra just not human, right? Like they can do all things, that black superwoman thing. That's why it's kind of like, a, it's true. I've seen my mother be a superwoman, but then it's also like something that we shouldn't necessarily glorify all the time because it can be extremely, extremely, extremely problematic for women in their health, right? And that's, I think, what happens a lot with women in, like, um, the medical field is, like, sometimes doctors don't believe what they say because they're like, no, (laughs) in a weird way, thinking of them as a superwoman is actually a very negative thing when it comes to medical malpractice. So these are some of the ideas that I think about with wellness and health and kind of Black history. But there's also this huge thing of, like, there are an amazing amount of doctors, black doctors and those who've changed the medical field f- from in every which way from the beginnings of, the, of them coming in, you know, triple bypass, heart surgery, uh, mm-hmm. you know, all yeah, this, it was definitely making huge inroads in cancer research and, um, you know, the work with vaccines and um, other kinds of those kinds of, there are black people all up and through there doing mm-hmm. huge huge work and thinking about kind of the the injustices that has happened in, in their past. So the trailblazers. Uh, I think there's huge trailblazers and they continue to do all that work. I mean, mm-hmm. I have so many like um, black folks I know in the medical field that I, that I, I love. I think one is actually a member of Alpha Kappa Alpha that at Washington state with uh, good old <laughs> Randy Smith at Emory university in Atlanta right now. So yes. I mean, there's like, there's just yeah. like, Who's actually, which this is kind of, I know we're just kind of talking now, um, who's actually mentoring one of my Omega gents. So when I was doing that high school program, one of my Omega gents' names, um, his, his dad's name was Edward Morgan. His name is um, 
listening to uh, Miles Morgan. He just graduated with like all these honors from Syracuse University and got accepted to Emory University um, to be a doctor, right? And who do I hit a hook him up with? Randy Smith. And now they're taking pictures together and sending me stuff. So that's that like small world. And that's that. Very. And it's so, it's so crazy it's that you said that. And I'm like, <laughs> Randy, guess what we're calling out for this? <laughs> yep. Yes. And I think she also did um, something in public health, too, if I'm not, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. But yes, she is. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Beautiful song. Well, I sincerely appreciate you. Um, Christina, do you have any questions, comments? Additions. I, I I was thinking of a couple of questions uh, to ask uh, Doctor. Uh, it's it's Doctor Boston, right? Or right. yeah, right. okay. So I I feel like you know growing up, I didn't really have like an extensive like um, understanding of like what Black history was. You know, every month it was like kind of the same old same old people. You know, Rosa yeah. Parks, uh, Martin Luther mm-hmm. King, and stuff like that. And I felt like you know. History has been pretty whitewashed and stuff like that um, up until like George Floyd is kind of like when the floodgates kind of opened <laughs> and like all of a sudden you figure out like there's all this history that we have that we weren't allowed to know, mm-hmm. you know, and even like with the Tulsa massacre, everybody was like, I've never heard of that. Like, I've never heard mm-hmm. of it either. And it was just just opened my eyes to like how much like we're not supposed to know. Like, have you like found that your curriculum has changed since then? Um, Because just just because like your students are like, just want to know like more, like want to know why like they weren't allowed to know this history. That's actually a great question. In certain ways, we have the conversation. My curriculum hasn't changed as much. Um, There's new books that I do engage and that I'm always bringing in new texts and stuff that are thinking about different things that are happening in the world. But um, I think the discussions have changed, right? Um, mm-hmm. My classrooms, I, I think of myself as more of a facilitator, not a dictator. That's kind of my classroom motto. I want my mm-hmm. students to be absolutely actively involved in their own learning, right? So we have mm-hmm. a lot of discussion-based kind of things. And obviously, the discussions move to those things in a lot of ways. <clears throat> they make the parallels between you know, Trayvon Martin and Emmett Till, right? They make those mm-hmm. connections and what's actually going on and how those things don't change um, uh, from then till now, right? Uh, so that's that's been one of the kind of exciting things. Um, I think that um, I've noticed in the classroom, you know, particularly in this kind of George Floyd, Trayvon Martin, Oscar Grant kind of kind of moment mm-hmm. in Black Lives Matter, um, writ large kind of moment. So I think I think that's how I would explain that, but. I mean, there's like a demand, especially for black history at this moment. Um, there's a way in which that corporate America is cashing in, as they always do on this moment as well, which is always very interesting. There's like an assault on black history where they don't want to know the true information and all that kind of stuff. Think about like, um, like my niece hit me up one day and was talking about how her history teacher was like what we call white splaining. Slavery. She was like, oh, not all slave masters were bad. They gave, you know, some gave their slaves food and, and clothes. And I'm like, brother, anybody that would own, he said, is this the context of the times? No, anybody that would own anybody. There were white people who were abolitionists who were 
ab- you know, who were absolutely like this should not happen. There were people with sense then, and those people who did not have sense, right? And you can't white explain that away. No, they were just evil people, right? And that's it. There's no other conversation to be had. There's no other way to justify what they did. That's just period, right? Um, so I think about that. I saw something um, that was going around kind of viral on the internet where this Texas boy showed their textbook and it was talking about how slaves were um, unpaid laborers or something like that instead of saying slaves. You know, so it's just things like that that you see that pop up all the time. And uh, especially right now in this conversation with the critical race theory, like there's this huge thing about they don't know what it is. They don't care. It says race. I don't want my kids to know it. Right. And I saw this great meme that kind of, for me, shuts it down in a lot of ways. And they were like, you know, talking about Ruby Bridges. And they were like, if this little girl could live through it, it can live through this history, then your kids can learn about <laughs> that history, right? Mm-hmm. We're talking right. about this, you know, six, seven-year-old girl walking into elementary school with people throwing stuff at her. If she can live through that, mm-hmm. then you can definitely hear about it, right? So, yeah, that's a lot of what, um, with your questions, stuff, kind of the stuff that kind of comes to mind. Thank you. I was also, that kind of brings me to my next question about, like, um, we, we're kind of seeing that, like, uh, that whitewashing of history even now, like in elementary schools, like they're trying to stop the learning of uh, slavery or like whitewash mm-hmm. it even more. Mm-hmm. Um, is there a way like and I thought it was interesting that you mentioned earlier um, when you were talking about Black History Month and how it was created, how it really originated from like colleges. And mm-hmm. it feels like the like, colleges are kind of under attack now just because like so many new ideas come from college. Um, and I think people are kind of afraid of just people learning the truth. Cause I mean, you can still learn the truth from college, right? Is there a way to like combat that? Like on like the elementary school level and the college level, like, are you like, is there something that you have to actively do with your students to like kind of enforce the idea, like what you're teaching is, is right. And everybody should learn this. Yeah. It's actually a really complicated thing, right? So for instance, and, and this is how it's kind of being thought of in California. So there was a, a law passed last year called AB 1460, which is where ethnic studies is required for all Cal State University, for all Cal State University campuses, for every student to graduate. By the time they graduate, they have to take one ethnic studies class at least, right? So they have that. They also passed something similar for the community colleges and for high school, right, in California. Now that sounds great. Issue with it is who is trained to teach those classes? Right. If you're going to force everybody to take that class, who's teaching that class now at a at a um, predominantly white high school in rural California? Um, who's teaching that class? Who's qualified to even teach that class? Right. So then you have to think about, OK, so that comes back to now we have to redo high school standards um, and for teaching. You have to add them for the idea of ethnic studies and how does that coincide with social studies and all that kind of stuff? So now we have to go back and then rework that stuff. Um, but it also allows for like which universities are even offering masters or PhDs in ethnic studies. And or do they have enough students training to then go into those classrooms and be able to do that? Do they even pay teachers enough for anybody to even want to teach those classes? And that's a no. And then you have to deal with a whole bunch of other stuff. So, Yes. I mean, there's ways people are thinking about combating that issue, but the, but then you run into a whole bunch of other things that 
become kind of problematic because the the way we think about teaching history or how it's been taught for so long has relegated black history to only February and to a few people, right? And only in high school. And that's why you wind up with so many people saying, I never knew this history. I never knew, (laughs) you know, I never knew, I never knew, I never knew. And that's because of how the educational system has been played out. So if we think about ways to change the educational system, which we are doing in California in a lot of ways, there's still a whole bunch more hurdles that that are added once you start that process. But it's good that the process has started because everybody's asking those questions. We're asking it in my department, in my faculty meetings, um, at the university level and at the you know the large Cal State University system level. These questions are being asked, and we're, we're trying to make it we're trying to make it happen. So. That's some of the answer. And I think a lot of other states are working on that, too. I remember Arizona a few years back had like they were trying to get an ethnic studies requirement. And, you know, Arizona's crazy as Florida. So they were having just as much issues as anybody else would. But, yeah, uh, these are things that are being asked and it's work that's being done, but it's not easy work. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like there's work being done in, in the opposite way too. Like, oh, yeah. you know, like little, li- just even small laws that you might not notice. Like um, they recently passed something, I think it was Virginia, it was some Southern state um, where they had to teach something about um, Abraham Lincoln and Frederick Douglass that I think it was, it was like false. And um, that like teachers ended up quitting because they said they can't teach it because it's, it's not true. Right. Um, but, but then who ends up getting hired to teach it, you know, somebody's going to teach it. Yeah. Some, somebody's going to teach it and it's, it's going to be lies and the children aren't going to know, you know. And that um, makes me think of like, uh, I just did an interview about Martin Luther King Jr. Day, uh, about the history of that. Yeah, like Mississippi and another state. It's Mississippi and somewhere else. Like they combined Martin Luther King Jr. Day with Robert E. Lee Day. You know, oh, my. In general. <laughs> I heard about you know, that. So, yeah, so there's like multiple ways that like history is assaulted in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. And this way of watering it down. And yeah, so you're absolutely absolutely correct in that. Yeah, it's coming from the other way and people are fighting against all that kind of progress that's being made. Um, so, yes, yeah, it's, it's a, and that's it's a, a whole continuous battle. different story. Like if you show the victim and like, I don't know how to explain it, but if you're showing Robert E. Lee and MLK, right, you're saying <laughs> you're saying choose who the part the great person is here, you know, like, right. Like how do you just like it's psychological warfare this is all this love psychological warfare like it's all how do i play on the mental how do i impact you in and move you into the direction that i want you to go in versus giving you the information and allowing you to decide and see for yourself what what really happened because i mean yeah i mean i'm happy for my children right like my children i feel like they will actually be able to know and learn about who they are Mm -hmm. moving forward right to the degree that i think that they deserve to know? No, but I feel like we've made headway since 2020, I would say, um, in the right direction of kind of being able to feel like we belong and we can see ourselves as we are learning and growing. So no doubt. But yeah. Well, awesome. Thank you so, 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 yeah, thank so you. much. No problem. No problem. Sorry. Yeah. I, you know, I, I talk a lot, so I get excited. So, um, <laughs> no, I love it. I'm like, dang, I, I'm like, I don't want to ask too many questions because we can go on and on and on. And you got to get that. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Go Niners. Yeah. 
Thank you so much. <laughs> I don't watch football. I'm about to clean my house and cook some ribs. <laughs> you know, you know. Um, well, awesome. Thank you. And um, uh, we'll be in touch because I feel like we might be able to get some more information. That, that I think, so. Yeah, I'm happy awesome. to. Yeah, just hit me up. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. Your no team problem. is going to win. Putting that so. <laughs> yeah, let's get it done. Yeah. Awesome. Thank right. you. Nice to meet you. Bye. And that wraps up this session of Humanistics Color Commentary. If you liked today's guest, you can check out the works of Dr. Martin L. Boston on Instagram and Twitter. And also, if you're interested in learning more from us, please visit and explore our site at humanistic.org. Give us a like on social media and or send us a message on our platforms. Thank you for joining us today and taking the time to listen.